0: Hello everyone, welcome to First Free Church. If you're new, my name is Adam and I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, thanks for taking the time to join us this morning. There are probably a lot of things that you could be doing today, but spending time worshiping God and hearing from his word is so important. And you should know that hundreds of others are watching with you um, either live or at different times. You may feel alone right now, but you're not. It's easy to become discouraged as we feel disconnected from each other but we are united by the Holy Spirit. We had our staff meeting last week, and I shared this passage from Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. It says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. Now, being with us today, whether you are in one of our venues or um, at home uh, virtually watching is a part of making every effort to be united in the Spirit. There's one body of Christ. That's all of His followers. And there's one Spirit. And that means we're on each other's team. Above politics and above preferences, we are all on the same team as followers of Jesus. So we need to bind ourselves to each other in peace. And there's another thing we share too, which is one glorious hope for the future. So let's do everything we can to live united now because we know it's what God has in store for us in the future. And that's one of the things I love about our association, the Evangelical Free Church of America, and our church. We have a lot of very different people in our church, different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, different upbringings, and different opinions. But we unite around the things that matter most, like the gospel message about Jesus. So since you know lots of other people are watching this with you, I'm gonna ask all of you to join me in prayer right now. Young and old, here and at home, pray for those who are united with you from a distance. Lord, we recognize that many people cannot be here right now, and they may feel disconnected and separate, but help them to understand right now, Lord, as they're watching this, the bond that they have, the unity that they have with other believers in Jesus, no matter where they are, and even if they feel alone or discouraged or disconnected, Lord, help them to understand that they are a part of something much bigger. Help them to feel the connection and the fellowship with other followers of you, Lord. And as we study your word today, speak to us, help us to learn and grow from it, we pray. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, I want to share something that has really been on my heart for a while, and it just so happens to show up in our text today. We're going to look at a passage that, at first, may seem like it's hard to draw out some personal application, but it reveals something to us about God that then gives us some insight into how he works and what he wants from us. Sometimes it feels like we live an upside-down world. How many of you can relate to that? Based on what you know and what you're seeing, it seems like lots of people are just kind of backwards and messed up in the head, right? And depending on where you get your news or what your friends say or what you see online, you can find yourself going, how on earth can they think that way? How can so many people call what is bad good and what is good bad? We live in a time when people are polarized more than ever. And that's not just hyperbole. It's reality. Tribalism is so strong that whole groups of people can rally around a cause that they think is righteous, and they may even use the Bible to support their claims. And you may look at it and say, how can they think that? How can they say that? Can't they see what you clearly see? How could so many people be so wrong? Do you ever think that? How could so many people be so wrong? Now, my goal today is not to talk about any specific issue. I'm going to share a general principle from God's Word that you will need to apply in your context. I said earlier that we are a diverse group of people in this church, and we have different concerns and different challenges right now. But chances are, most of us have some areas where we look at the world and we ask, how could so many people be so wrong? And that's what I want to talk about today. First, we need to talk about Joseph. For the last several weeks, we've been studying the life of Joseph because his was a life of many traumatic interruptions. He experienced more lifestyle whiplash than probably any of us ever will. From favorite son of a wealthy farmer to slave of an Egyptian to head of that Egyptian's estate to prisoner to second in command of all of Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at the time, we've seen Joseph now reunited with his brothers who betrayed him long ago. And we've seen his wise leadership that saved Egypt and his family and millions of people from starvation during a seven-year famine. Now, his family has moved to Egypt, including his father, who loves him dearly. Jacob was 130 when he came to Egypt. And now, 17 years later, his time on earth is coming to an end. And we'll pick up the story in Genesis 48. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn there right now and read along with me. Genesis chapter 48, starting in verse 1. It says, One day, not long after this. Now, the this is something that happened in the last chapter, where Jacob made Joseph promise to bury him back in Canaan instead of Egypt. So, one day after, not long after this, word came to Joseph Your father is failing rapidly. So Joseph went to visit his father, and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Joseph arrived, Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to see you. So Jacob gathered his strength and sat up in his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And this was probably a story Joseph had heard many times before. Jacob may be saying it for the benefit of others around, including Joseph's own sons. He said to me, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply your descendants. I will make you a multitude of nations, and I will give this land of Canaan to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Now, Jacob says, I am claiming as my own sons these two boys of yours, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born here in the land of Egypt before I arrived. They will be my sons, just as Reuben and Simeon are. This may seem strange, but we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But any children born to you in the future will be your own, and they will inherit the land within the territories of their brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. Long ago, as I was returning from Paddan Aram, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. We were still on the way some distance from Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So, with great sorrow, I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath. And this kind of seems like Jacob is just reminiscing here for a little bit, just kind of throws that fact in. As he's near death, he's just thinking about, hmm, thinking back over his life and his experiences and Joseph's mother, Rachel. Then Jacob looked over at the two boys. Are these your sons? He asked. Yes, Joseph told him. These are the sons God has given me here in Egypt. And Jacob said, Bring them closer to me so I can bless them. Jacob, was half blind because of his age and could hardly see. And this is why, by the way, he asked who the boys were. It wasn't that he had never met his grandsons, I don't think. He could see there were two boys in front of him, two young men in front of him, and he just couldn't tell who they were. So Joseph brought the boys close to him, and Jacob kissed and embraced them. Then Jacob said to Joseph, I never thought I would see your face again, but now God has let me see your children too. Joseph moved the boys who were at their grandfather's knees, and he bowed with his face to the ground. Then he positioned the boys in front of Jacob. With his right hand, he directed Ephraim toward Jacob's left hand. And with his left hand, he put Manasseh at Jacob's right hand. But Jacob crossed his arms as he reached out to lay his hands on the boys' heads. He put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, though he was the younger boy, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, though he was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May he preserve my name and the names of Abraham and Isaac, and may their descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth." But Joseph was upset when he saw that his father placed his right hand on Ephraim's head. So Joseph lifted it to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. "'No, my father,' he said. "'This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head.' But his father refused. "'I know, my son. I know,' he replied. "'Manasseh will also become a great people, but his younger brother will become even greater, and his descendants will become a multitude of nations.'" So Jacob blessed the boys that day with this blessing. The people of Israel will use your names when they give a blessing. They will say, may God make you as prosperous as Ephraim and Manasseh. In this way, Jacob put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. What a fascinating story, right? Joseph brings his boys to see their grandfather one last time. It was customary for fathers and grandfathers to give their children a blessing. Jacob's blessing is a prophetic blessing. God speaks through him, not just here, but in the next chapter as well to predict what would happen for each of his sons. The blessing of Jacob is really important because God has promised to bless and work through this family like no other. It started with Abraham who respected and trusted God and then his son, Isaac, and then passed on to Jacob. None of these men were perfect, by the way. Very flawed individuals, But God chose them to bring about a nation that he would call his own, that he would eventually use to bring the Savior into the world through. And they would be the first people to spread the message about Jesus. So there's this promise of blessing and an amazing future that Jacob and his family has. And it's time to pass it down to his sons, who also have not always been the most amazing people. But they're coming around. And Jacob doesn't just want to bless his sons. He wants to bless his grandsons, the sons of Joseph in particular. There are a couple of ways to look at this. Either Jacob was making decisions about what would happen with his sons and grandsons, and God was respecting Jacob's choices and would bring about those results. So Jacob's doing the blessing and choosing who he wants to bless, and God's going to honor that or God was revealing to Jacob what was going to happen, and Jacob was passing this information along prophetically. So Jacob is doing the blessing, but it's actually coming from God, this information about what is going to happen in the future. Now, I'll just tell you, I believe based on how we see God working in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, um, and how God has already been revealing things to Jacob, that God was sharing with Jacob, revealing this to Jacob, so that he could share it with his family. Either way, Jacob and God were in cahoots. So what Jacob says in his blessing really does come true. Now, the blessing of the grandsons seems very odd here, doesn't it? First, Jacob claims the boys as his own sons. Right there on his deathbed, he adopts these two boys into his family. And Why would he do that? What does it really mean? Why would he need to do that? Well, it's hard for us to relate to this because we don't have the same customs and culture as they did when this book of the Bible was written. So let me try to translate it into modern times for you. Imagine a grandfather who won a prize of millions of dollars, but this was a family prize that had benefits for his children and grandchildren too. He would receive $10 million and his children would each receive $5 million. His grandchildren would receive $1 million each. Pretty sweet prize, right? Well, when he reads the terms of the prize, he realizes that there is nothing in those terms that would keep him from adopting his grandchildren so they get more prize money. He asks the organization giving the prize if there was anything in the terms that would keep him from doing this before he collected the prize, and they have to say no. Maybe they didn't think of that. So before he collects his prize money, With his family, he legally adopts his grandchildren to become his sons so that each of them will get $5 million instead of $1 million. Now, that's the closest example I can think of for what Jacob does with Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob basically upgrades their status in the family from children of Joseph to children of Jacob. They are now on par with the rest of their uncles for inheritance and receiving the blessing of God that's unique to this family. They have a closer relationship positionally to Jacob than they did before, and that move has an impact on the nation of Israel for a long time. Adoption is a theme throughout the Bible. For instance, God wants His people to care for orphans. He says that one aspect of true religion is caring for orphans, and Christians have a strong history of adopting children who need a family to raise them as their own kids, and we definitely should. If we believe that human life is precious and that ending that life is wrong even before birth, And we need to be just as passionate about caring for mothers and babies and unwanted pregnancies as we are about keeping those babies from being killed. Now, a year ago, we had someone in our church who was ready to launch a group to support adoptive families and help families interested in adoption go through that process. And that unfortunately fell through when they had to move away for another job. But maybe some of you would be interested in starting that group. And let us know if you want. One of our email addresses is care at efree.org. You can email us and let us know if that's something you're interested in. But adoption is something that we really need to care about and be supportive of as a faith community. Adoption is also a term for what God does for people who trust in Him. He adds them to His family. Most people don't know this, but to get really technical about it, our adoption as followers of Jesus isn't complete until we receive our glorified bodies. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.23. He told the believers that we are eagerly awaiting our adoption. So it's a long process for us who have trusted in Jesus to be fully adopted. And many of you who have adopted a child can relate to that. It can be a long process. But think about what happens through that process for us with God. He takes people who are positionally far from him and makes them his children. And this is so profound. Don't miss this. He could treat us as his followers, but instead, he treats us as family. He could view us as simply the disciples of his son, here to do his bidding, but instead he treats us as his own children with a special relationship and connection to him. And that close relationship comes with blessings and gifts. Romans 8.17 says, Since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. One version says we are co-heirs with Christ. Not just followers, but family. Sons and daughters of God. How amazing is that? Now let me ask you two questions. First of all, do you believe that? Have you internalized that. I'm a child of God. I may be facing challenges right now, and I may be discouraged, but what matters more is that I am God's son or daughter. That perspective changes your outlook on your life and on your struggles. Have you internalized that? Do you believe that you are a son or a daughter of God? That makes a difference in how you live. The second question I want to ask you is, do you act like it? Does your character reflect a son or daughter of God? Does your speech reflect your position and closeness to him? And when you talk about other children of God, do you show them respect as also being a part of God's family? See, I believe Satan is working overtime to get the body of Christ to turn against itself this year. And sadly, I see it working even in our own church. Why? Because of gossip, because of bitterness, because of anger, because of jealousy, and probably other things I'm not even aware of. Last night, someone shared some things with me about some divisiveness in the church. This morning, out of the blue, someone randomly messaged me to say they could tell that Satan was working to bring division in the church, and they were praying against it. And believers, we need to be so vigilant about this. It is so easy to allow our egos and our pride to blind us to the unity we are supposed to have in Christ, even when we disagree. This, of all seasons, is not a time to turn on each other or slander other Christians. It's a time to cling to our unity in the Spirit more than ever. Reach out to other believers in your church or in your community. Encourage them. Support them. Remember that what unites you is stronger than what divides you. Are you acting like sons and daughters of God, with all the privileges? And responsibilities that come with that. Well, Jacob makes these two grandsons part of his immediate family. And that means, by the way, that Joseph's family is basically getting a double blessing. His two boys are each getting a blessing as if they are Jacob's own sons. So Joseph's family is getting two of those, a double blessing, which does come true when the people move into Israel hundreds of years later the families of Ephraim and Manasseh each get a large portion of the promised land as if they were full sons of Jacob. But the blessing isn't the most interesting thing to me. It's how Jacob gives the blessing. Look at verse 12. Joseph moved the boys who were at their grandfather's knees, and he bowed with his face to the ground. Then he positioned the boys in front of Jacob. With his right hand, he directed Ephraim toward Jacob's left hand. And with his left hand, he put Manasseh at Jacob's right hand. Now, why do you think the Bible is so specific here, with the right hand and the left hand? Anytime you see this level of detail given in the Bible, you know there is a point to it. Joseph is facing his father, so the hands are reversed left is right and right is left, just like you and me. My hand is on your left-hand side, my right hand, and my left hand is on your right-hand side. So Joseph's hands are the reverse of Jacob's, and the author of this book, who is Moses, wants us to notice how intentional this movement is. Joseph uses his right hand to put Ephraim on Jacob's left. He uses his left hand to put Manasseh on Jacob's right. And you might think, who cares? (laughs) But this is actually a really big deal. See, in that culture, the right hand is superior to the left. So the right hand of blessing is viewed as being better than the left hand blessing. And I know that sounds messed up, but that's just the way they felt. About 90% of the world is right-handed, so that's the hand most people used to carry swords in. And so to shake with your right hand is to show that you have no sword in it. I'm opening my hand to you. I mean you no harm. I mean no harm to the other person. Now, there is a left-handed man in the Old Testament. His name is Ehud, who assassinates a Moabite king because he tricks him into thinking he's a friend, but he discreetly draws a sword with his left hand, which he's very skilled with, and he uses it to kill the king. In some parts of the world today, it is a big insult to shake hands with the left hand because that hand is used for self-care and cleaning, and the right hand is kept cleaner and used for eating. Another aspect of this culture back then is that the firstborn child gets a better inheritance than the rest. They get a double portion. If there are 12 sons, the father's estate would be divided into 13 portions, with the oldest son getting two of them. And that also seems a little messed up, doesn't it? especially if you're watching this right now and you're still a kid living at home and you've got an older sibling, you're like, man, in Bible times, they would have gotten twice as much as me. What's up with that? But it was actually commanded by God for the Israelites in Deuteronomy 21, 17. It was a fairly normal part of their culture back then. The oldest son got a double portion of the inheritance, but also much more responsibility when his father died. He was responsible to take care of his mother and any unmarried sisters and the rest of the family as needed. He became the surrogate father for the family. When a group of us went to Israel last year, we spent time in Jericho, and I talked with a Palestinian man who explained how it works in many of their families today. The oldest son receives the inheritance and ownership of the family business but that also meant the oldest son is responsible to provide for his younger siblings, almost as if he's their father. And the younger siblings are then free to go to university and become doctors or lawyers or pursue some other career. The oldest gets the family business, but also the responsibility to help his younger siblings improve their lives. So Joseph and everyone back then believed that the right hand was better and the firstborn should get the better blessing but Jacob does something completely different. But Jacob crossed his arms as he reached out to lay his hands on the boys' heads. He put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, though he was the younger boy, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, though he was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, The angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they preserve my name in the names of Abraham and Isaac, and may their descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth. Now, Joseph was upset when he saw that his father placed his right hand on Ephraim's head. So he lifted it to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. No, my father, he said, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. I know, my son. I know, he replied. Manasseh will also become a great people, but his brother will become even greater, and his descendants will become a multitude of nations. So Jacob blessed the boys that day with this blessing. The people of Israel will use your names when they give a blessing. They will say, may God make you as prosperous as Ephraim and Manasseh. In this way, Jacob put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. So let me ask you, how ironic is it that Joseph, of all people, would be so strict in adhering to the cultural principle of the blessing of the firstborn more. Now, here's a guy who has been favored by his dad his whole life, and he's number 11, but he wants to make sure his firstborn gets the better blessing. Now, it's possible that Joseph didn't want this switch because of what he had been through with his brothers. He didn't want his sons to have the kind of bitterness and jealousy and animosity and ego that he experienced. So, hey, dad, just keep the normal order of things, okay? Don't rock the boat. But Jacob insists. He knows what he's doing. I think he's getting this from God. He blesses Ephraim more than Manasseh, and it all comes true, by the way. The Jewish tradition says that amazingly, these two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, Manasseh had no bitterness toward Ephraim after this, and they actually got along really well and and eventually became very prominent tribes in Israel. And to this day in Jewish communities, the names of Ephraim and Manasseh are used as a blessing. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh, they say, just as Jacob predicted they would. Now, this little snapshot here with Jacob blessing Ephraim over Manasseh is actually a glimpse into a bigger narrative throughout history. God does this all the time. The world and the culture picks who it thinks should be the winner. And God says, nope. I'm going to work through someone else. See, Abel was chosen over Cain. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Joseph was chosen over Reuben and all the other brothers. David was chosen over all of his older brothers. God regularly chooses to work through people the world and the culture rejects. It reminds me of something that Paul said to the church in Corinth. And Christians back then in the days of Paul dealt with the same types of problems as Christians today what the world promoted didn't match God's will, what he promoted. What the world celebrated was often the opposite of what God celebrated. And many of the desires of the worldly culture are actually rooted in rebellion and disgust for God, even when they are disguised to look like morality. So here's what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. This foolish plan of God, foolish plan of God, is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Obviously, He's not saying God is weak. He's just making the comparison that even whatever would be weakest about God, which there is nothing weak about God, would be stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, he says, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and He freed us from sin. And this is the most important part. You've got to get this. Therefore, as the Scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Now, did you see any parallels in there to our world today? The wisdom of the world promotes things that are contrary to God's teaching. But God flips the script on the world by using things that make no sense from a human perspective to accomplish His purposes. Paul gives the example of preaching. From a purely human perspective, the message of the gospel sounds foolish. You mean you're putting your trust in something you cannot see? Are you telling me that God exists? He came to earth as a human. He lived a perfect life, died on a cross to pay for my sins and open a path for me to God, rose from the dead, and now he invites me to have a personal relationship with him. From a scientific perspective, that sounds, well, foolish. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, we also know it has transformed our lives. Not that we're perfect yet, but we have a relationship and a hope that the rest of the world doesn't have. God uses what the world thinks is foolish to accomplish his plans. The Bible acknowledges that from the world's perspective, God's methods don't seem like the best way to go. And here's some other things. God says, do good for other people in secret. The world says, post that on Insta, let everybody know. God says, you are wonderfully complex, and I made you that way. But the world says, God probably got it wrong, and now you need to fix it. God says, I design relationships to be a beautiful reflection of who I am. The world says, how creative can we be in disregarding what God established? God says, let everything you say be good and helpful to build other people up. And the world says, the more you criticize and look down on other people, the better you are. God says, human life is precious and made in His image. The world says, you can throw it away if it's inconvenient. God says, trust in me and think about things that are good and pure. The world says, consume all the negative news you can and let it shape your worldview. God says, believe in my son, Jesus, and what he did for you to be saved from the mess that you're in. The world says, we've got lots of other things you can believe in to pull you away from God. So why does God do it this way? Why does he want to be counterintuitive to what the world says? Paul says it at the end of that chapter. In verse 31, he says, therefore, As the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. See, God deserves the credit for our salvation. It's not some epic quest that we can later boast about. It's not a formula or a diet or any human plan that saves us. We actually have to admit that we're wrong, that we can't do anything to earn salvation that we've sinned and rebelled against God and ask Him for forgiveness, and that's how God saves people. And to an outsider, it may seem odd or foolish, but to those who have trusted in Jesus, it is life-changing truth, and we can't take credit for any of it. God uses things that seem foolish and weak. God works in ways that seem like the opposite of what we would do, so in the end, we can't boast about it. We have to give Him the glory. Do you think God is going to use 2020, to do some amazing things in ways that we can't understand right now? We look back on those seven years of famine in Egypt like a blip in the timeline that speaks to the faithfulness of God and His care for people, but it didn't feel that way for a lot of people at the time. So give some thought today to what God may bring about in counterintuitive ways because of the struggles the world is facing right now. And then give some thought what he may want you to do to be a part of his work. I want to pray for you now that God would work through us to bring about solutions and to be his hands and feet and to influence in the world and to do things that we may not understand right now, because he works through people that are weak and people that are sometimes foolish like me, and he does that to bring glory to himself so that none of us can boast and say, hey, we're amazing. Look at what we did. It's all God you want God to use you that way? I want him to use me and you that way. So let's pray for each other right now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you use broken people, broken vessels. Thank you that you work through us in ways that we don't understand sometimes. And right now, God, there's a lot that we don't understand. And there's a lot that we look at in the world and it just seems wrong and upside down to us. But we know from your word that you work in unexpected ways Sometimes you choose the younger to lead the older. Sometimes you choose the left over the right. Sometimes you choose things that seem contrary to the way of this world to accomplish your purposes. And I think we're seeing that right now, God. We don't know the outcome of these things, but we know that we want to be part of your solution and your work. So God, I pray that you would work through us as your children, Lord. Help us to be children of God that act like children of God, that treat each other with respect, that have a unity in the spirit and a a bond together as part of your family. And then to go out and share that with other people, to share the peace that you bring. Lord, help us to be your ambassadors in this world, to bring more people to know you and experience what you have for them. Continue to use weak and broken people like us, like me. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.